The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. At the Reuters Next Global Conference, me and the Breaking Views team got chatting to the movers and shakers at Ola Electric, Philip Morris, Viacom CBS and Klarna about disruption at scale, fiddly corporate transitions and the fintech frenzy. Take a listen to these interviews. We'll be running more through the month in place of some of our normal programming. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Una Galani, an editor at Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from London. Our columnists made a splash at the Reuters Next Global Conference this month, chatting to business leaders and policymakers. This week, we are sharing interviews with Ola founder Bavish Agawal, Philip Morris boss Jazik Olzek, Firecom CBS chair Shari Redstone, and Klarna's Sebastian Simakowski. That's the co-founder and CEO of Europe's biggest fintech. Bavish tells us why India is ready to join the fast lane of the electric vehicle revolution and about his ambitions to export vehicles to the rest of the world. Jazik describes the challenges of delivering a tobacco company to a smoke-free future. Shari tells us why content is still king even as the company pivots from old assets in TV and cable to new services in streaming. And Sebastian unpicks why buy now, pay later is an anti-sentiment against plastic cards. We'll share more of these special sessions with you through the month in place of our normal programming. Take a listen. Welcome to this session on disruption at scale. I'm Yuna Galani, Reuters Breaking Views editor in Mumbai, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Bavish Agarwal co-founder of Ola, a group at the cutting edge of India's technology revolution with its ride-hailing and electric vehicle businesses. Bavish, welcome. Uma, wonderful to be here and really looking forward to the, to the chat. So this year, while most of us were quietly riding out the pandemic in our bedrooms, you <laughs> built a factory that will eventually be able to churn out 10 million electric scooters you hired an ex-Jaguar Land Rover designer to make sure that your models look slick. And it's a yeah. hugely ambitious project, considering that Indian demand for these kinds of products or battery-powered vehicles is still very nascent. You've already surprised people with the uptake. I think you've booked some 90,000 orders. Much how quickly, more, yeah. Much more. Okay, well, you can tell us the number. Um, but how quickly can India go electric from here? Yeah. You know, Una, it's a very important uh, question that you open with. You know, many times uh, companies and uh, analysts believe that because there is no demand today, there will be no, you know, we, we make a correlation about the future from the, from the past. But that's never true, especially in the, in the times of disruption, especially technology disruption or technology-led business disruption. Consumers are always ready. You know, even in India, consumers have been ready for the future. And the future means a better product, a better, uh, more sustainable technology. To build uh, to build this industry out for the future, 
but the consumers never had the right quality of product or the right performance from the electric vehicles of you know before that existed so they never bought those vehicles the consumer wants as soon as markets and consumers see a step function improvement or a 10 10x improvement in the product they shift en masse and that's the nature of disruption always you know it's an s curve disruption is never linear be it in the ride hailing industry globally if you remember over the last decade the ride hailing industry grew from zero to a very large industry globally or e-commerce or similarly electric vehicles so in that sense when we looked at when we looked, thought of getting into the ev business we were very confident that if we play for the future and if we build at scale and build technology in india for uh, for our uh, business we will be able to create the market and create this disruption and that's exactly how it's played out so our ambitions in electrification are to make india the global electric vehicle hub and it's it's really possible if you look at the ev landscape in the you know in the world right now there are leading companies like tesla etc who are building from a western perspective they're building luxury vehicles pickup trucks uh, premium uh, sedans etc but majority of the world uh, does not ride those vehicles does not buy those vehicles majority of the world buys urban uh, mobility vehicles like small vehicles small cars mid sized cars city cars two wheelers three wheelers you know this is what majority of the world buys and this is where we believe india will be the leader going forward and we want to make the world's largest ev hub in india and we've begun our uh, our journey with the two wheeler project uh, and it's going well like you said we've gotten a lot of interest from the consumers which shows that the consumers are always right consumers are always willing to uh, bet on the product of the future how many orders do you have <laughs> Uh, you know una i can't share the exact numbers but uh, you know we have uh, almost a million reservations of our product so that's uh, that's you know unprecedented in terms of any kind of automotive launch in india a million or 100000 uh, reservations versus orders right so i, I told uh, you know uh, almost a million uh, reservations for our product wow incredible yeah. fantastic one of the things about you, your factory it's big enough to address global demand too and it's very rare to see indian entrepreneurs build ambitiously like that from day one you've talked in the past about selling in europe why would scooters made for a price sensitive market like india be popular in a rich country una uh, india is not a price sensitive market india is a value sensitive market frankly every customer in the world is a value sensitive customer Con- consumers want value and a good proposition and india's strength uh, when when we look forward especially from a technology domain india will define the technology paradigms of the future in manufacturing in electric vehicles india can be the future uh, and it can lead the future globally and if you look at consumer requirements in europe in north america in india in asean they're all very similar people want a great uh, design in their vehicles they want great performance and they want great software and connectivity and these are the three propositions that we are building in our products the advantage of india also is that uh, you know we can leverage the uh, indian cost structure to build uh, world leading cost structures and world quality products we can leverage the indian r&d talent which is very very well renowned globally <clears throat> a lot of these uh, global oems have the technology centers in india but building for uh, different markets so we we are leveraging that and we're also leveraging the domestic market scale to further lower down costs so when when you mention about our own manufacturing plants we are setting up the world's largest two wheeler plant uh, in india next in near to bangalore it's a 10 million units a year plant so you know the phase 1 is already commissioned and we are producing from that plant already and it's a fully women run plant so the vision that we are building for the future of manufacturing in india and the world is sustainability not just in terms of environment but also in terms of local communities and in india sustainability for local communities means that we need to bring more women into formal employment in india especially in jobs like manufacturing 
So when you when you think about your potential future export ambitions, are you thinking about exporting the same product products, or would you be exporting export built products at different price points? That'll that'll be dependent on the market and the product uh, specific that we are going to export. So let's say for a market like the West or Europe or North America, the product will go slightly differently. There'll be a different variant there. For products like other developing markets similar to India, uh, a very similar product to the current product might go, but the platform that we've built for our two-wheeler is going to be the same. There'll be variants uh, depending on the market, but largely the platform will be the same. Because uh, one of our core philosophies also is to not think of India as a price-sensitive market, but you know, build world-class technologies and world-class products at a lower cost structure for the India market. Right. and leverage that strength globally. You know, on the other side of that, we have, you mentioned Tesla, we have Tesla and they want India to slash import tariffs so they can sell into India. I mean, that would obviously provide competition for your planned electric cars yeah. in a, a future point. But why is lowering tariffs a bad idea in your opinion? Una, uh, let me first uh, state that I believe competition is good, right? Uh, Ola is a group which has always faced all kinds of competition and uh, emerged stronger as a result of it. And Competition is good for the consumer and for technology uh, innovation and to accelerate technology innovation. So I believe in the force of competition. You know, if you look at our electric business, we are competing with so many incumbents, right? So we are the disruptor actually. In, in that sense, competition is good, but when we also look at India from an India lens, right? What is required for the Indian ecosystem is for global companies to invest in India, to build in India, to create in India, to manufacture in India, to do their R&D in India, like how we are doing it. Right? We are building in India. For the Indian ecosystem to grow, we need to accelerate R&D manufacturing of world-class products in India. And in that sense, I believe the government's policy of encouraging global OEMs, especially leading companies like Tesla, to, to invest in India is the right one. Uh, whether that's accompanied by a tariff uh, uh, levels or not is, again, the government's way of doing policy. But the, the focus should be to invest in India and to grow the Indian ecosystem. Sometimes many of these uh, global OEMs uh, think of India as a as a market to dump some of their old products or to uh, or to just uh, sell a little bit for the uh, rich uh, 1 million Indians but that's not the india story the india story is that india has to lead the world in uh, technologies of the future so we all know that being a disruptor isn't easy you have enthusiastically launched the product you have relied on social media quite innovatively to uh, promote that but the first batch of deliveries has been delayed. Was it a mistake to commit to a delivery timeline when your teams must have known there was industry-wide supply chain issues? You know, uh, there is a delay, but the delay is, uh, is not a, a very large delay. Definitely, it's a delay that we will, uh, we will deliver when we promise now in 15th December onwards, and we are on that target. The chip shortages has been a bit of an unpredictable beast for everybody. And we are producing in our factory. Uh, we are ramping up our electronic supplies. And whatever we are producing right now, we are putting it onto test rides across the country. So if you see, we have uh, almost a 1,000 scooters all across the country doing uh, test rides uh, across 1,000 cities, actually. We've uh, prioritized that so that all customers can experience our product and they can feel what it is like. And then very quickly, as our electronic uh, chip uh, supplies are ramping up and they're ramping up as we speak, we start delivering to customers. So that's the kind of trade-off we made. You know, in hindsight, while we could have uh, estimated it a little more accurately, it's always good to have a little bit of pressure in the system, uh, internally and externally. <laughs> and you know, this is not a, you know, kind of scale-up uh, periods are not a linear period. It's not like there's a linear delay. It's just phase shifted one month out. So whatever was going to happen one month from now, it's going to happen one month later. So, so that's about it. Yeah, we're talking about pressures. I mean, you have also lost some of your top team recently. 
Why is that happening now? Are people burnt out? Are you growing too fast? That's always a classic startup mistake. <laughs> yeah, see, Una, our culture is one of uh, working on big challenges, ambitious and bold bets, and innovating and building the future. And that's what we've done with Ola, as well as that's what we're doing now with Ola Electric, right? And uh, that journey is a is not an easy journey for uh, for people, right? Uh, and the, the kind of people we hire also are those who are motivated by impact, not just motivated by having a nice job. Many of many people have served many many years with us, and they might want to go on and do their own entrepreneurial journey, which actually we support. And we are uh, we keep getting uh, better and better talent to be part of this uh, vision of building the future, building a, a, a technology oriented uh, organization and group out of India which can be world class. Right. So that's what defines us. Many there are so many people who get excited by the challenge of working in cutting edge technology because you know in India. This is not the norm. Even in the startup community in India, it's not very few companies which do real world scale and world class uh, uh, execution on technology. And uh, so, as a group, we have uh, we have a services business which is Ola Mobility. We have a, a manufacturing business. So we are in, in that sense a very broad set of technologies into one organization. And that's what excites so many people to come and work with us and create the future. So you know, our proposition to people is very simple: come here, create the future, enjoy doing it. Tomorrow you want to, after a few years, go to your own entrepreneurial journey. We are all for it. Well, tell us about some of your other ambitions. I mean, in India, you go head to head with Uber, although your ambitions seem much bigger. Uh, how much bigger are you thinking beyond ride hailing? Your app is offering food delivery from your cloud kitchens now. There's health insurance policies that you're selling as well. Does Ola want to be an all-in-one super app? Our business in India, if I just give you a little bit of a chronology, is uh, we started with the ride-hailing business in India, and uh, over the last few years, we scaled that up. Uh, we made that, uh, you know, uh, even in the pandemic, we were able to make cash flows, positive cash flows, one of the few companies uh, that were able to do that. Now we are fully recovered and growing beyond uh, pre-COVID levels also in a very healthy unit economic way. Uh, vision for the Ola business from here is to be a large, broad-based mobility platform. Ride-hailing is obviously at the center of that. Uh, we have uh, more than 150 million customers thanks to our ride-hailing business who uh, you know, engage with us uh, frequently. Uh, on top of that, we are now building a broader mobility ecosystem with our uh, vehicle commerce business, used cars, new vehicle sales, vehicle servicing, et cetera. That business has also started uh, scaling up well across India. We're also adding to that vehicle financing, vehicle insurance, et cetera. So there's a broad mobility ecosystem that we are in the process of creating. And we have a very unique perspective on that because we have capabilities across the mobility value chain, from mobility services to uh, even the manufacturing and the engineering aspects to the financing aspects. So we are actually one of the few companies in the world which understand mobility fairly horizontally across the value chain. Right? Uh, now, uh, beyond that, what we're also looking to do is to grow into more broader uh, platform with other solutions for consumers like uh, financial services across beyond mobility like like you mentioned health insurance micro insurance products on our app you know we are one of the large platforms in india today with so many customers frequently using us and that's one area of uh, important growth uh, that we see forward yeah so i'll call it a super app but maybe you won't you can call it a super app super app is a nicer simpler abstraction on what i just said <laughs> um yeah. we all know it's particularly busy time for you because you are preparing to take the ride hailing company public uh, the mooted value out there is some seven billion dollars has the volatility of the recent ipos changed your plans at all i mean when could we expect you to file and list well, no, we, we are not a company which takes a short-term view on anything Right. Uh, even if you look at how we've planned for our IPO, we've been uh, very 
thoughtful about it. Even pre-COVID, we had started uh, making sure our unit economics are looking healthy and uh, that we are getting ready to list. COVID obviously put a slight blip in that for a, for a few months, but then we put those plans back on the on track. Even with the Ola Electric, the way we've gone about it is thinking long term. So short term, there might be volatilities in the market, but that that has never informed our uh, our decisions, right? So yeah, we definitely will be uh, going IPO. I can't. As you can imagine, I can't speak more than that for obvious reasons, but uh, it's in the near term. Yeah. Can we expect it in 2020, maybe first half of next year? Definitely. But beyond that, I, you know, as you can imagine, I can't speak. <laughs> so, tell me about, I mean, obviously a lot of attention is on the ride hailing business and taking that public, but obviously the, the electric vehicle business is sort of growing in leaps and bounds. The private valuation has sort of doubled, so I hear, um, in, in private markets, some $5 billion in the last uh last few months alone between when you sort of promoted the vehicle and then started taking orders, you know, it's happened very quickly. When do you plan to list that given there's a lot of momentum there? You know, our vision for the, for the electric business is to create the products and technologies for the future. Uh, so we are building a two-wheeler business, uh, like you mentioned briefly, we're also building a four-wheeler business. Uh, our first car will be out in 2023. And we're also looking at interesting uh, domains like cell manufacturing and engineering, uh, you know, maybe robotics, et cetera. So, so that business is still very early. You know, the two-wheeler product is uh, is mature. Right? It's going to be, uh, uh, you know, out there very soon. But we will definitely give that business time to grow into the ambition and the vision that we have. But uh, whether that's one year, two years, we'll see. Have you, have you learned any do's or don'ts from watching all these other tech companies go public this year? So much excitement in the market, which is in general good. I think uh, companies like Zomato, Nika, you know, Policy, even Paytm, all have paved the way for, uh, for for the next set of companies to to go public. And in general, uh, in my view, the the right yardstick of a company is the value you create for your consumers, and as a result, shareholders in the long term. Right? And uh, being public is part of that institutional process. So we definitely have looked at these companies and learned both positive and negative things from them. And uh, we will definitely incorporate that as we go public. Well, we look forward to seeing how you manage that. But I mean, you have global ambitions for both of your businesses. Do you expect to see many more Indian startups targeting overseas markets? See, I believe, Una, that uh, if you look at the world of technology businesses globally, right, uh, we are still in the early days of technology disruption and uh, transformation across uh, businesses. And technology, I don't just mean digital technologies, but even uh, new energy technologies like what's happening with electric or hydrogen, et cetera. Right? Now, in the future world of technology, Indian talent and Indian uh, companies will play a much bigger role than what has traditionally happened in the past. Now, will that happen uh, today, tomorrow? Will it happen only in the internet? Will it happen in uh, automotive and energy domains? It depends on the companies and the entrepreneurs. Our ambition definitely is to play a bigger role in defining these technologies for the global world, not just in our country, but leveraging our India's market scale, leveraging India's R&D talent, leveraging India's uh, ecosystem and building for the world's uh, challenges. I have a quick question coming in from the audience, actually. Someone wants to know about how do you see the race between hydrogen and lithium batteries playing out? Which is better and more sustainable for two-wheelers? Uh, specifically for two-wheelers, uh, you know, it'll be hard to put a hydrogen uh, engine uh, and have a very efficient one in a two-wheeler. EVs work really well. EVs actually, even today, are commercially more viable than even gasoline uh, engines in two-wheelers. So, so we're getting, uh, that's why, you know, when we, have, when we launched our product, we also launched Mission Electric which is by the end of 2025, uh, we have to ensure that in India, there is no gasoline uh, two-wheeler sold. 
And I genuinely believe that is possible if the industry comes together. And we'll definitely be making aggressive investments to make that happen. Hydrogen, uh, I believe, still has a while to go before it becomes relevant for two-wheelers or even uh, mid-sized four-wheelers. Closing question to you, I think, has to be, you know, what's your message to people looking to invest in India? Because this India is a country that has a reputation for very long timelines, especially in greenfield projects. So I'm talking really about you know, building factories and, and so forth. You acquired land very quickly, I think in January, in a very quick space of time, and your factory came up very fast. You know, yeah. what made that so possible? <laughs> My message to investors, and investors are always very smart. Investors want to invest in the future. India is the future. Indian entrepreneurs are the future. Uh, like you mentioned our factory, we, you know, I, I believe there's this misconception that India is a slow place. It's absolutely not a slow place. If you want to do uh, well, India is possibly one of the best places to do business because you can, you can accelerate the, the government machinery over the last, last decade has understood the value of businesses, understood the value of entrepreneurs. Society, Indian society is in general very entrepreneurial, right? So you, but you can't bring a Western set of rules to India or a Western set of products to India. India is a different place. So you need to work in India as the, uh, as the Indians do. <laughs> and I know uh, we've, we've shown that uh, we, you know, we bought the land in January, like you mentioned, that this January, uh, we did the groundbreaking in March and our factory is up and ready. It's, it's one of the largest buildings in the country and it's the largest factory in two wheelers and it's up and ready in six, nine months. That's not, uh, that's not even possible in China. I forget uh, anywhere else in the world. <laughs> Hello, my name is Dasha Fanasiva and I am a Breaking Views columnist in London. Today on Reuters Next, I am joined by Jacek Olchuk, who is the chief executive of Philip Morris International, the biggest non-state tobacco company in the world. He's leading a transformation of the business away from burning tobacco and aims to get most of his revenue from smoke-free products by 2025. Jacek, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Ethics aside, what has, practically speaking, been, been the biggest driver uh, that's forced you to bring about this change? Um, and how do you achieve it? So there are two phases, right, of, uh, of our change, of our transformations. One which we're delivering as we speak, which is to essentially combustible cigarettes, as we know them, behind and um, help uh, you know, smokers who otherwise would continue smoking this product to go into scientifically recognize better alternatives, the so-called reduced risk products, and there's a quite a broad spectrum of the <clears throat> products which deliver the satisfactions, deliver the, the, the nicotine, although uh, offering um, that the much lower exposure to the toxicants, etc. We know that the problem around the cigarettes is the combustion, Combustion generates the smoke. Smoke contains the thousands of uh, various chemicals. Many of them are very, you know, bad, very harmful to, to 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 human health. And if we eliminate combustion, we will go smoke-free or combustion-free. We actually address to the very very large extent the the, the problem. Obviously, the products are not the risk-free. Although, and this is you know recognized by by many today, they do offer vastly better alternative than continuing smoking. We invested behind this product, or we started investing behind this product more than a decade ago. To date, we spent more than eight, uh, $8 billion. Um, but while working on these products, we also have generated or built um, <clears throat> a very big capability around the science uh, uh, of uh, inhalation. 
and now comes the second chapter, which we opening also as we speak, which is how we can use this knowledge about the inhalation uh, human respiratory system for medical applications. Hence, we've all heard our recent acquisitions in the UK, in Denmark, when we going into, into this direction. So it's very exciting. I mean, you're going solving the problem of a smoking by also leveraging the investments in a science technology and, and you know, offering a, another group of opportunities for to the company. Yeah, so just to focus on the first bit of that, um, you know, 2025 is just a few years away and you're, I think, on around a third of your revenue from uh, non-smoke or just, just below. Um, do you need M&A to, to get there in the next few years or is organic growth <clears throat> going to carry you through? No, we the, the way we look at this uh, at this you know targets the fifty percent you know revenue coming from a smoke free, which as we you know as we stand today about the thirty percent we already have achieved and this was an organic development of our products our platforms, I believe we can get to the fifty percent continuous uh, continuing the organic growth the one billion revenue, our aspirational target by twenty five coming from the non-nicotine product or beyond nicotine product. And this, I believe we can also um, to the very, very large extent achieve organically. Obviously the two companies which we have recently acquired, they have a revenue, but you know, our focus is on the revenue we can generate now on the combined capabilities of these two companies rather than just the revenue which we acquired, you know, with these companies today. So the, the way I log into this whole thing that obviously a billion dollars in 2025, if we just, you know, try to extrapolate where the core business of PMI will be by this time, it will be not a very meaningful part of the, of the entire group revenue. However, it's very important that we achieve this first billion, because you know, once you get the first billion, you will have a two, four, six, eight, etc. And I, and I think that's that's over a period of time going beyond 2025, it's going to build and create this this important leg of the of Philip Morris business going forward. The Victoria acquisition is a very interesting one because it makes uh, inhalation devices, and there was a huge backlash from NGOs and charities saying, we don't want this medical company to be owned by a, a tobacco major. Did this surprise you? The problem was that they didn't want a company to be profiting from diseases that it helped spread. So did, did that response surprise you? Uh, and can you do you think it's understandable? Yeah, I mean, there were a few voices of uh, <clears throat> criticism, but frankly speaking, if you look where we want to transform Philip Morris, you know, first solving the problem of cigarettes, offering reduced risk products, investing behind the science, repurposing the science, if you like, or re reutilizing the science, going into the medical space. I don't think there is, you know, anybody who will disagree that this is a very positive driven, positively driven transformations. We're creating the company which should have a net positive impact on a, on a society rather than just the company we continue selling cigarettes. So what we're doing, we're taking a cash flow and earnings of the combustible business, reinvested them very successfully behind the reduced risk products. And we're continuously reinvesting this cash flow into going into medical. So yes, there were a few voices of uh, criticism. You know, criticism of what? That Philip Morris decided to go away from cigarettes because this is essentially, well, what does it mean? So 
I think this, you know, that sort of emotions and negative emotions over a period of time will, you know, fade out and people will really focus and watch uh, quite rightly whether, you know, we fulfill our promises and I, do, and I am convinced we will fulfill and, you know, both Vector and the 13 will come up in the, the next few years with the great products which are addressing unmet, you know, patients or consumer needs you know, net positive, net positive impact. So nothing what we're doing is, you know, should come as a surprise. We're just putting in action the visions which we have, you know, shared very openly seven more years ago that we want to leave a cigarettes behind. We want to go smoke-free and, you know, generate more sustainable and more rewarding business to the society, to the, you know, shareholders and to, to, to employees. Yeah, so I mean... Um, one of the practical concerns was that people were worried, critics or critics were worried that scientists would leave these companies because they wouldn't want to work for a tobacco. Mm. Has that happened? Has anyone no. left? No, no. I mean, it's, I think the moment that we were free to talk to the organizations and to the individuals, actually, uh, I think that the level of enthusiasm in, uh, in Vectura and, and in Fertin is, is really at the very high level. The moment when, you know, they've learned what Philip Morris truly is about. I mean, I remember that for many people, they just recognize Philip Morris International as, you know, as a cigarette, major cigarette uh, uh, company. They know that we have Malbrot for many, you know, especially if you're not a smoker, Etc. They don't even know about the ICOs, about our you know journey with FDA, the, the authorizations we received, or the science which we had. There, the moment when we start sharing what we know and how our knowledge and experience and expertise is a complementary to what they have, I can only see the excitement. I mean, it would be you know good to ask them directly, but what I hear and we we try to communicate very frequently. Even this week, we had the great webinar you know obviously we're all in a COVID situation so we cannot go into this you know in-person type of interactions but we put the scientists from Victoria scientists from a 13 scientists from Philip Morris into you know knowledge exchange uh, seminar webinar it was you know hours and hours of exciting conversations we're now clarifying the key strategic directions in terms of the programs and the product lines, which uh, they should now focus on uh, developing. So I think that that worries that those people will live, uh, I think, are, are well put behind us. Was there any part of you that thought, that believed that the deal could get blocked on these considerations? Because that's what people were calling for, and it was very difficult to judge whether there was, a, you know, a chance, in, a chance at all that they'd succeed. No, no, no. I think we've been, uh, you know, we spent some time assessing, uh, you know, Vectora from a capability perspective, the moment when we realized and got convinced that these are the capabilities which we would anyway, over a period of time, have to develop organically. Mm. We thought it was a great opportunity to take Vectora and, you know, combine the, and essentially accelerate the time to, to do something which, you know, anyway, in-house would have to do ourselves. So we've been a very committed to conclude these transactions, obviously, as often in this uh, in m you know, uh, territory, 
you're not necessarily in charge of a full timing. We all know the story, the Vectura takeover was triggered by the private equity. And then we had to quickly make a decision that we step in. We will not be able to have an access to the asset the way to this asset in the way we wanted to have it. So we ended up, I mean, it's all ended up very nicely. Be a time in the next few weeks, presumably latest by the time when we will go with the investors conference at, at Cagney in the US, uh, which is, I guess, uh, February, when we will you know, have a quality time to, to explain and to demonstrate what opportunities actually involve Vectura and 13 and the capabilities which we have had. So we have at Phil, in Philip Morris, you know, what sort of opportunities that they offer to, 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 to investors in, you know, in PMI stock. I'm very excited about this. I never thought that, you know, in 30 years with Philip Morris started when this was a company only focusing on a combustible cigarettes, then came the vision to, to solve the problem once and forever of smoking that, you know, I will be sitting as the CEO, transforming the company into smoke free while completely moving the company to, to, to the new direction. It's, you know, not, I don't think that many people have opportunity closer towards the end of their career to live the excitement like you would almost, you know, join the very successful startup. This is a great time. Since you became CEO, one of the things that sort of generated loads of headlines was this idea that you think that the UK should ban tobacco sort of in, in the next decade, in the same way as, you know, what, you're not gonna be, we're not going to be selling petrol in 2030. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, why the UK? And obviously that's a small proportion of your tobacco business now, and what's a lot more important right, is the emerging world. And I just wanted to ask you, when do you think you can say something similar about, say, Asia? Well, actually, I believe if you have all the stakeholders aligned, fully committed, 10 to 15 years is not a that long period of time to fully solve the problem of smoking. I said it in the context of the UK as, you know, UK is one of the few countries which recognize the the, the, the concept of a tobacco harm reduction. They realized already, you know, some time ago that you're relying only on pursuing a current, if you like, anti-tobacco, anti-smoking policies. This will, you know, essentially perpetuate smoking for many, many decades, uh, for many, many decades. And, you know, using the opportunities created by the products as I said, which are smoke-free, non-combustible, non-combustible, etc., you actually can start reducing the harm as of as of today. The electronic cigarettes markets and other alternative non-combustible products in the UK markets are, are well developed, so they already have a great starting point. And it seems that among the regulators there is this alignment about the role of a harm reduction. So actually, I think 10 years for UK is not that much. I mean, it sounds like a long period of time, but knowing where you know everyone else, everyone is already in the UK. If you have that commitment, put the right incentives behind innovations, right disincentives behind the combustible cigarettes, you can phase out. You can phase out uh, cigarettes completely. To be very frank, I think the tobacco industry, as we know it, is better equipped to solve the problem of smoking than energy industry today. 
because if you really want to go to the you know complete you know carbon zero carbon environment the last mile is still not resolved right i mean it's still the questions about the energy storage there are territories so the, the places in there that uh, in, in the world were renewable energy especially a solar etc type of an energy may not be accessible so there are a couple of the things which is quite rightly that we're all ambitious to ambitious to go zero carbon but in that time span between it today and the targets which you know individual countries are putting on themselves i believe everyone is hedging that technology will come with some solutions which will make this target more realistic than if you want to extrapolate current technology there but if i use the parallel to the tobacco industry frankly speaking all alternatives to smoking exist today Science exists to verify and prove that they are better than, than continuing smoking. Technology exists to scale them and make them accessible for every country in the world, i.e. for every smoker in the world. So we are in a much better situation, I think, a tobacco industry to solve the problem of smoking than energy industry today. Well, just to, um, to loop back to that point, if it's 10 years in the UK, what's realistic? or say Indonesia or Cambodia or India? Yeah, maybe maybe another five years. I mean, nobody have done it, right? So we, right. we're all in you know, speculations. But look, we we know the examples in our product categories when the better product, because it was better serving the societal individual needs, etc., was forced actually by regulations to replace the previous product. I mean, a Europe, US, most of the countries in the world very nicely converted into energy saving uh, light bulbs okay yeah. moment that the technology was there there was acceptance in a marketplace we'll all, we'll all enjoy the same light in our houses in the factories etc while consumer consuming significantly less energy you had a number of the tax incentives initially and later on the regulations essentially banning or phasing one fully one product and the other so if I could see and envisage that, you know, there is a round table of, of people who are all stakeholders around the tobacco industry, because there are a number of problems which have to be addressed. So you take the ministries of health, obviously they have an important say. You have a ministries of finance, agriculture, industry, etc. And we all, all would agree that we give ourselves 10, 15, 12, whatever, years to solve fully the problem and stop stop selling cigarettes essentially i mean this is absolutely doable then you need obviously the communication because the consumer smokers they have to know they have to be encouraged that these products are better obviously the best thing for a smoker is to quit smoking Just but then if you don't quit smoking what do you want to do continue smoking or you go and you know as fast as possible switch to the better alternative so you talked about wanting to be a wellness company you know, it's pretty audacious. Can you see why that might stick in the core for some people? And especially they might have trouble trusting you on that, given you yourself have spent a lot of your career figuring out how to maximize revenue from tobacco sales. So do, do you think that was maybe sort of slightly overdone but, or premature to talk about wellness? Well, if you have a dreams, you have to spell them out and then you start working to deliver and achieve them. So yeah. the same is when you have uh, problems, I think. Uh, the moment when you know <clears throat> Philip Morris uh, has recognized that the smoking is the problem, admitted that the smoking is the problem. So you put the problem on the table, and what you're going to do about it? 
And then you start working on a solution. I think the same applies when you have even uh, the, the very aspirational, almost a dream type of a target. Yes, I do believe that the science which we have built around developing ICOs and a similar reduced risk products makes that dream more realistic than just without anything. So it's not about just the capital allocation. This is leveraging the capabilities which we have in the companies, the hundreds and hundreds of the scientists, technicians, etc., product development, people in the you know electronics, which we didn't have that capability in electronic devices capability some years ago. If you look at that thing, you can say, look, can we go as far as becoming a wellness company? I mean, at the world have seen the transformations. There was this fabulous company in Holland, which started as the coal mine. Today is one of the major manufacturer producer of the nutrient food or ingredients to the nutrient food. Nokia started, you know, where Nokia started, where Nokia is today. Even if I look at the history of various industries, that sort of a transformations were there. Yeah, so we're sadly running out of time. Uh, thank you so much. There are lots, lots more questions I wanted to ask you. Thanks very much for your time. Really thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Jennifer Saba, a columnist with Breaking Views based in New York. And I'm joined today by Sherry Redstone, the chair of Viacom CBS, the US media-based company behind the CBS broadcast network, SpongeBob, MTV, and the streaming video service Paramount Plus. Sherry, welcome to Reuters Next. We're really happy to have you. I am happy to be here. All right, well, great. Let's just jump right in. So as I mentioned, Viacom CBS owns cable networks, broadcast studio, movie studio Paramount, but you're also getting into streaming video. You have Paramount Plus that you launched earlier this year. Why don't you tell me how Viacom CBS is managing the transition from basically old assets like TV and cable to the new stuff like, you know, your Netflix type competitor. How are you toggling and, and doing that transition? Well, actually, I think the company has never been better positioned than it is now for the future. What we're doing is working. And I think that what people underestimate is that a lot of what are perceived as traditional assets are actually the engine that's driving the transformation of the company. So if you take a look across our company, we have amazing IP assets, we cover all demos, we cover all genres. And one of the things that we're able to do as we're transforming along with the rest of the industry is use a lot of our legacy businesses to actually grow Paramount Plus and our other streaming businesses. So if you look at our traditional assets, as my dad once said, content is king. And if you yeah. have great content, it's going to create value across multiple platforms. And so I think we're really well positioned. We're working together as a team. We're collaborating. We're taking the franchises and the content that we have and trying to maximize the value of that content across all of our platforms. So it's not either or, it's how do all of these assets work together to maximize the value of what we have for the whole of the company. Viacom CBS, you own a lot of assets that, uh, traditional assets that, that attracted younger audiences, right? Like MTV, Nickelodeon with children, for example, Comedy Central, et cetera. So is, do you find it difficult? Because a lot of that type of audience is cutting the cord, right? 
and they are instead subscribing to streaming video products. So how do, what do you see in that transformation? Like how, how is that working for Viacom? Because you, you're kind of more exposed than some other media companies. Well, I don't look at it as that we're more exposed. I look at it as we have a greater opportunity to keep our audiences and to bring them with us to the next platforms. So if you take a look at what we've done on a lot of our cable networks like MTV and Comedy Central, we've done a lot of really great reality programming. You take okay. a look at what we've done at CBS with some of our traditional shows like Seal and Evil. We've used those linear audiences to drive them to Paramount Plus. You know, just this week we launched South Park post-COVID, which actually had more you know, people watching that movie than any other content that we had put on the platform, you know, for this very, you know, short period of time right away on the first day. Yeah. So I think that people are still watching on multiple platforms. The content we're creating for the linear platforms does end up for the most part on a, a streaming service. And I think that the consumers are finding the content where they want to find it and the assets that we have are working. I mean, just this morning, you know, Paramount Plus was listed as the fastest growing brand across adults, Gen Z and millennials. And while it didn't mention kids, kids know Nickelodeon. So they're watching Nickelodeon wherever it is. So I think the value of the brands that we have and the IP that we have is just translating to more content viewing on linear and ultimately on streaming. Okay, so let, let's stick with the content theme here for a second, because I want you to talk about Viacom CBS's strategy. It's a little different than some of the other media companies where I, I feel like a lot of them are holding back their content for their own services, right? That doesn't seem to quite be the case with Viacom CBS. And let's use Yellowstone, I think, is a, is a good example. It's a hit TV show on one of the cable networks that you own. But the streaming rights are... You sold them to Peacock, NBC, is that correct? That is correct, but you yeah. have to remember, we didn't have Paramount Plus at the time that we did that. So okay, so take me through the thinking and the logic of the, the, so the, the whole content. Is, you know. And mind you, I'm not sure I think that was ever a good thing given the success of it. Um, oh, okay. We all would have <laughs> right. that, you know, at this point in time. But the reality was, you know, when we sold that, you know, when we sold, you know, a couple of other shows, we did not have Paramount Plus. I don't even think we were merged at the time that Yellowstone. Oh, okay. okay. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that Yellowstone was sold. So I think early on, you know, we were maximizing the value of our content and a lot of it was going towards licensing, but there's a definite shift in the company now that we're creating content for our platform. In fact, you know, you saw Mayor of Kingstown and we're launching Y1883, which Taylor Sheridan, who's the one who produced Yellowstone, and we're creating that whole universe on Paramount+. Plus. So I think we have shifted now that we have the platform, now that it is successful, that we are really focusing on creating most of our content for our own platforms. That being said, you know, we do have some prior deals and there may be some pieces of content that don't make sense for our platform, but we are very focused now on growing our streaming services. Okay, so, so the whole idea, and this I, I believe was part of the strategy at least a year or two ago when, when the company first merged, and again, this is you know, prior to Paramount Plus, but it was sort of an arms dealer type of strategy where you were going to sell, but you were going to keep things. It sounds like that shifted. Is that is that true? Is it sound? I, I would like say major keep keep shift. Major okay. shift. I mean, we've been really pleased with the success. You know, we've really exceeded our internal, you know, plans for the for the streaming service with subscriber growth, with revenue growth. So I think you know we're very comfortable with what we're doing, and the plan seems to be working, and the consumers love it. 
Okay, great. Well, let, let's talk also a little bit about some news that happened earlier this week. I mean, you've been selling a lot of assets, a, a lot of real estate, for example. You sold CBS Studios for quite a bit of money, $1.9 billion. Can you talk about your asset sales and what you plan to do with that money? The rationale, first of all, was to take a look at our assets once the companies came together and to, you know, I think we said very early on that we were going to sell non-core assets. And that's what we're continuing to do. So we didn't need all of that real estate. We did not, you know, when the companies combined, we didn't need all of the, the place, the production space. Simon & Schuster, fantastic asset. Um, but you didn't necessarily have all of the rights you needed to be able to take that content and put it across all of the other platforms for television and movies. So that actually we looked at as a non-core asset as well. Oh. But you're not going to see us selling any of our core assets. We believe in what we're doing. We are all about content production and you know the platforms that we have and the distribution that we have. And that is what we are focusing on. So you will see us taking these funds, investing it in content, continuing with our dividend and ultimately paying down debt. But we're continuing to invest very heavily in our company. Okay, and actually I just wanna kind of you know, go back a little bit to Simon & Schuster. It's been in the news, obviously, the Department of Justice is suing to block the merger with Penguin Random House. Are there contingency plans for that if it goes, if that's blocked? Like what, what's going to happen with, with that? Well, I'm not going to speak too much to the legal end, except to say, you know, we do have an agreement with them and they are required to do whatever it takes to you know, bring forward the transaction. It's a great asset. There's always backup plans and everything that we do, but, you know, we're confident that we will get to the right place on the sale of Simon & Schuster. All right. So um, let's talk some more about the content. And um, Disney, I think earlier announced they're going to spend $33 billion on content this year, which is up from $25 billion last year. I mean, I was just looking at what analysts are projecting ViacomCBS to have in revenue, and it's about 20, 25, 28 billion this year. I mean, when you look at that number and you think about what it takes to, to kind of compete on that that level, I mean, how do you think about content spend? I mean, that that's a lot of money. And how well, and know, where no, I hear you. And and people talk about content spend and people talk about scale. But the point okay. that I always try to make is it's not about how much money you spend on content. It's about whether you spend it on the right content and on the content that people want to watch. And I think if you look throughout the industry, the Viacom CBS has one of the highest hit rates of our content on all of our platforms. You look at BET, tremendous success with that community. You look at CBS, we have four of the six, you know, top new shows, the top drama, the top comedy, the top new series, top number one in daytime, number one in overnight. You look at Yellowstone, the highest performing thing on the cable network. You look at you know Paramount Plus and the acceleration of our subscriber growth. I think one of the things that we have is we create the content that people want to watch. You know, there are other companies out there like Netflix, great company. I never want to say anything negative against any of my colleagues' competitors. But the reality is they create a lot of content. They buy a lot of content to see what hits. And if you take a look at what we do, I think our success rate is really higher than anybody else. I think we have unbelievable creators, you know, who work in our company. They know what they're doing. And I think as you take a look 
at you know just what's happened in the last several months as well as the last year you know we have led on everything whether it's the megan harry and megan interview whether it was yellowstone on cable whether it was cbs whether it was nickelodeon whether it was clifford or paw patrol so i don't think it's about the money you spend i think it's about having enough money to spend on enough content that people want to watch and so far we're proving that we can do that hello and welcome back I'm Peter Thalarsen, uh, EMEA editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Sebastian Simakowski, co-founder and CEO of Klarna, Europe's largest fintech. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sebastian, we've got a, we've got a very limited amount of time and a lot to talk about, so I'm, I'm going to jump straight in. Klarna is, is, is long been a pioneer in, in the business of, of buy now, pay later lending, which is going extremely quickly. I was looking at one estimates uh, recently which suggested that this could be 300 billion dollars of purchases could be could be financed this way by by 2024. Looking at it from your perspective what is it that, that explains the the incredible uh, growth and appeal of this product? Well I think that there's a couple of reasons obviously but I think there is or and our data and research suggests very clearly that it is a growing anti-sentiment and, and people don't really appreciate the traditional credit cards for good reasons right there's been tons of different bad practices implemented by the credit card industry you know of how they try to get you to revolve how to trick get you put into spending and, and and how it's very expensive i mean we've seen credit cards in the uk as example can go up to 50 58 percent aprs there's a, a growing resentment there against these uh products and very helpfully people have been using debit products instead, which are much better. People should use debit products. That's great. Unfortunately, though, occasionally when you, for example, shop online, a debit product isn't great because what if I don't get the product? Uh, what if I want to make a return? I have to wait for the money. Not really a problem on credit card, but problem on debit card. Or what if I need a small kind of cash flow solution for just one or two months? Things that people with credit cards take for granted are not available to debit card users. And so really Klarna and our solutions and, and, and our competitors as well to some degree come in and solve for that problem right um, and I think it's a better way I think everything else equal 10 years from now if less people have credit cards more people have debit cards but use occasionally buy now pay later services I think that's a better better outcome well and, and one sort of function of success is that we've seen a lot of other players banks credit card networks big tech companies and so forth entering this market what are you doing to uh, to sort of stay ahead of the competition <laughs> well, I think quite a lot, but I think it's almost like, you know, I, I'm, it's interesting that a lot of people, you know, believe that it's as simple as, you know, buy now, pay later or put in three parts or do an installment to us and to clone at least that feature has been one among many, 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 many features for a long period of time. And, and I don't mind people simplifying things and thinking that's that's the whole thing behind the success. It's a critical and important part of the success. But I sincerely believe that we're doing something very, very different on a much grander scale. Give you a concrete example, every transaction that Klarna process, we carry the full SKU level data, meaning the full digital receipt. You don't get that on your normal Visa and MasterCard transaction, meaning that we can show you images of the items that you bought and compare that to your you know, bank purchase history transaction view where you barely understood what you purchased. So there are tons of other feature sets that Klarna brings into it, both on the retail merchant side as well as on the consumer side. And in the end, I think it's really about like, you know, the purpose of financial services is to help markets and trade work more efficiently. And I'm not necessarily sure that banks have 
um, neither aspired nor entirely lived up to that uh, goal in the last couple of decades, where it feels like there's been other things on their top of their mind. So I think that it goes, you know, far beyond that. But but again, you know, again, binopulator is a very in itself a great product and a great feature and it drives a lot of interest in the company and users want it. And so to us, it's a fantastic way to acquire new users to the net, uh, to, to the company. But we obviously offer them so much more today. Yeah, I guess that'd be one interesting to hear thing to hear from you a bit more about is is how do you see your business evolving? And you know, there's been a, there's a lot of talk about disrupting the banking industry and so forth. But but what do you sort of what what's your aspiration for what Klarna would look like in future and in terms of the types of things that people could do with it and how that would compare to what they would get at the moment from a bank? No, but I think that like I think about it a little bit like this. I usually you know use this analogy that. It's a little bit like self-driving cars. I won't be able to tell you when this is going to happen. Uh, you know, all of us thought that self-driving cars by now obviously would have been all over the place, but we realized that hasn't really happened yet. But I still, you know, debate with my eight-year-old daughter to what degree she will ever to get a driver's license. And and I think probably my guess right now is still no, she won't. And the same applies to this. If I look at the future of banking, I see a future in which you wake up one morning and your digital assistant says, you know what, I look through your mortgage tonight, and I realize I can save you 10 pounds by switching provider. And the only thing you need to do is say yes, in order to do that. And, and I think that's going to happen. I just don't know whether it's going to happen six months from now or, or 10 years from now. I think that's the direction of where financial services and industry is heading. And it has some severe implications, because first and foremost, Will you really care whether that mortgage is provided by Barclays or Lloyd's or HPSC? Not so much. Like, it just, like, who cares? So that's the problem with the commodity of money, right? That it's entirely indifferent between these different providers. But what it does tell me, so, like, if that's the, what does that mean? It means we won't see the same return on equity. We won't see the same return on assets. These will be much more perfect functioning markets. They won't be as perfect you know nothing will probably ever be perfect unfortunately but like at least more perfect than what we've had historically what that means though is you have to ask yourself so what do you want to be as a bank within that where do you want to be well it's very clear to me that the best person to be there is the digital advisor that gave you that advice because maybe you as a consumer are like thank you i'll tip you five pounds for saving me the money like you know in the best case right so what it means, it turns banking from being a question about return asset, return equity into being a data play, into being a technology play. And it turns into not about what we've seen, unfortunately, the tech companies done, which are hoarding customer data for their own benefits and for their benefits of their, you know, for the advertising revenue and so forth. But actually, when consumers have decided to share data with us, how do we make sure that they get the maximum value for the data that they have decided to share with us? How do we save them time, save them money, make them less worried about their finances? And I think it's a very long aspiration. If we can have, if we can prove one day that consumers that bank with Klarna are better off financially speaking and less worried and less stressed than people who don't, like that's it. Like that's the future competitiveness. And so I think that's that's where it's going. And, 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 you know, obviously, I would have loved for all of that to be live today. And, you know, it's going to take time to move into that. But I, I genuinely believe this decade 
is going to be that disruption decade, just like I saw e-commerce disrupting physical really between 2010 and 2020. Remember in 2010, we're all yelling, Zalando is too highly valued and it will never work off and ASOS is a broken business model or whatever. And now suddenly we're like, you know, <laughs> really appreciating those amazing companies. And, and I think the same applies now to some of the neobanks and so forth. And I think 10 years from now, this industry will look dramatically different. Yeah. I mean, we are talking about money. And I guess um, if we think about the sort of the users of, of your product, and particularly the buy now, pay later product, I mean, there is some concern that, that people are taking on more loans than they can afford. I think there was a study in the US recently that found a third of pay later borrowers were behind with, re with repayments. How do you think about protecting your customers from that kind of situation? And also, do you sort of accept that it's inevitable that, that this will have to be a more heavily regulated aspect of, of finance in the future? Yeah, I think, look, there are a couple of aspects. So first and foremost, if you look at, you know, I think one should always be slightly careful when some of these reports come out, because it's not uncommon that they come from these price comparison websites that are supposed to help and guide me towards the best credit card and get a lot of money from banks for doing that. So like I always take it with a slight pinch of salt, depending on who's publishing it. But with that said, at the same point, I don't want to say that we're arrogant about this. On the opposite, if you look at our underwriting, and we've been doing this for 16 years, our loss rates are 30 40% below credit card industry standards, right? So we've already proven, in my opinion, that we are a more responsible underwriter, that we are you know, more thoughtful, but also smarter in a way. Part of that relates to the fact that when you use Klarna, you usually use it for maybe a first purchase of 50 pounds. And then we take a single decision on that. And then you come back and use it for 100 pounds and so forth. So we slowly build up the relationship with the customer to verify that they can use our product in a responsible way, which is very different. If you go and apply for a credit card, you're smacked on with a you know, 4,000 pound limit and just go out and spend there, right? And that basically the decision is made. So I think that there are already you know, aspects to our product that actually makes it more responsible and better for the consumers. But beyond that, obviously, we spend a lot of time on analyzing when things do go wrong, what has happened in those situations, what, how could we further? We're right now in the UK live with open banking underwriting, which to us is fantastic because it gives us actually a full understanding of the economy of that customer. So we can see whether they're using other providers, for example, if they have multiple credit cards, we can understand their income levels at a deeper way. And, and consumers are willing to share that with us to get a higher limit and a better understanding and so forth. So I think that my belief is that we will continue to do that. Now, with that said, again, like if you're a credit, unfortunately, like, yes, credit sometimes will lead. So I think we, you know, we won't be able to entirely avoid the problem. But I do feel that we're ahead of, the, of what people tend to portray. And, and I think there's some, some of this comes back to, you know, the incumbents wanting to promote a different view on what's going on. Now, with that said, on regulation specifically, I believe that this industry needs to be regulated. And I think we've been very consistent in that message. But at the same point in time, what we have also promoted and said is that when you regulate, remember to regulate with one key thing in mind, which is keep the competitiveness of the market. Because one of the downsides of how we regulated financial industries is we've really locked consumers into that. When you want people, when you want to say, it feels like the most natural thing to say, everyone that applies for something like Klarna should have to answer all these questions about their income and you know, affordability checks, et cetera. But what you're also doing when you're doing that is you're introducing friction, tons of friction and tons of you know, making it more difficult for consumers to choose and try a new service. And in the UK, as an example, it's probably not even going to hurt us the most 
it's going to hurt our competitors that are much smaller and don't have the same amount of users that we do. And I think if you implement such rule sets, the downside is you're making the market less competitive, which means in the end, the consumer is losing out overall and society is losing out. So it's very important to regulate in a way where you promote competitiveness. And that can be done, for example, by outcome-based regulation that it's very, you know, I think FCA is quite forward-leaning into in saying that like, look, uh, outcome-based could be, for example, your losses cannot be higher than credit cards or, you know, whatever, like put a KPI on this instead and let us innovate and keep the customer journey frictionless so that we keep competitiveness in the market because that's critical. And it's actually even more critical for our smaller competitors. But over the 16 years, I've learned that Klan is a better company if, if people are chasing us as well. So I'm, I'm not, I think it's a good thing for us as well. But like, I, I think that's very, very critical that not to forget about that. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Also, check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.